Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show... Little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. What are you doing? I never had me a little girl before. Kids okay? Where are you taking us? Where are you taking us, sir? Amazing grace. Thomas! What is this? What is this? Those were scenes from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning, way back in 2006. And by way of introduction to the Arts Express Halloween festivities on this show, and our guest, Jordana Brewster, who starred in the movie, as well as discussing her current film, Exploring a Different Kind of Scary, the pandemic in the satirical Who Invited Charlie, making the rounds of the festival's Hamptons and now the Austin Film Festival in Texas, who invited Charlie delves into COVID as family farce, warts and all, when a former forgotten pal turns up uninvited at her family country COVID hideaway, and what to do about it. The Latino immigrant star also gives an update on her latest Fast and Furious upcoming sequel, Fast X, and what the challenges are like on screen, as well as in the film world, as a female and against very different sorts of formidable males, Vin Diesel and Jason Momoa. First, some scenes from Who Invited Charlie and what to do about him as much as possible. think you understand how an airborne virus works. Well, it's nice to meet you, Charlie. Uh, clean towels upstairs, help yourself. Welcome. Max, let's go. Yeah, it really is. Okay, Phil. Yes? What do I do if I get hungry or thirsty or I run out of my Medicaid wipes and I need toilet paper? Because the line. Okay, you may occasionally, from time to time, quietly cross the line. But a little bit of times I can cross the line. But, you know. Got it. Okay. Hey, Phil. Yes. Is this one of those times? Because I feel no, like, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Got it. Right. If we're not going to respect the line, then, you know, what are we doing? I'm a hugger, so it's going to be hard in this new normal. Let's respect the line. Of course. Okay. All right. Respect Get the line. 
Hello, Jordana Brewster, and welcome to our show. Thank you. I so apologize for my for my tardiness. Okay. What was it about this film and this story that led you to want to be part of the production? I really related um, to motherhood because I'm a mom of, of two boys and um, I was just coming out of a divorce with um, my then husband. And so I really related to a lot of the issues that were being stirred up by the pandemic. And so I felt like I could play the heck out of Rosie. And I, and I felt like in the past with, with a lot of the characters that I played in other films, there were more these sort of like idealized versions of, of women or of girls. And I felt like Rosie was a more complex, flawed character. And so that's what I was really drawn to. And I was also drawn to the comedy. Mm. And working with Adam Pally was, and Reed Scott, you know, two comedic, like they're pretty brilliant at, at comedy. So I wanted to learn from them as well. And what about your character, Rosie? What can you say about her in terms of revelations about her? And what intrigued you about wanting to portray her? You know, I love that she um, she's a little bit <laughs> neurotic and and type A and, and, and has a son that, that is um, going through a very tough time. I think for parents, the pandemic was super challenging. I mean, I remember trying to homeschool my son and my son, my son looked at me while we were on Zoom and he was like, are, are you kidding me with this? Uh-huh. And and I, I get it because when I would go on Zooms, I felt so self-conscious because you're kind of staring at yourself. You're staring at all these people. And even though you're staring at a screen, there's something so intimate about it. And my son rejected schooling on Zoom, and then we had to figure out a different way. And I, and with Rosie and, um, and her son, it was, it was similar where he was like, I'm not, I'm not going to do it this way. I, you know, he has his quirks. And I think that was also a huge problem with um, Rosie's relationship with, with her husband. And he was sort of in the dark about it and they didn't see eye to eye about those things. And so those issues, which I now get to play at 42, um, those themes that come up, um, were something that really, really resonated with me. And Nick Scott, who wrote the screenplay, um, who's also a childhood friend of mine, coincidentally, um, he has he has two kids as well, and and he was raising them obviously during the pandemic, and and so to sort of go back and forth and talk about what resonated to us in the script and what we could bring to the script in terms of like, hey, I worked with. Um, this specialist and and different things like different things that New Yorkers do specifically because we both grew up in New York and we had, we would go to the Hamptons during the summers. Um, it was fun to infuse the characters with with specific um, memories that that Nick and I both shared. Now, who invited Charlie is a satirical look at life under COVID. What can you say about the challenges of that balancing act? those funny and serious elements surrounding COVID in this story? Well, I think it's, I think it's a huge challenge, and the challenge is also reflected in the title because it went from when we were shooting the film, it was called Charlie and the Pandemic, and then as it's coming out, it's called Who Invited Charlie? And I think we're leaning into the comedy, we're leaning into the lightness of it. And and it is very challenging because obviously for for many people it was um was a very tragic, trying, um, difficult time. But there's also there's a side to the pandemic where it had very positive aspects. Like people got to slow down. People got to I mean I personally got to figure out what was working in my life, what wasn't working in my life. Um, and, and there's something about, there's something about being stuck in a house with your own family and having to face the things that you're usually escaping. That is, that is in essence, very, very funny. So to lean into that, I think is something that this, this film did, um, did brilliantly. And what can you say about surviving the pandemic in your life and any anecdotes to share about that in your own life? Mm-hmm. Um, I got COVID very, very early, oh. and 
and I'm I'm a bit of a um, hypochondriac. Like if I feel a <laughs> symptom, I'll then Google it. And, and so I was very lucky in that I got it early enough that I didn't know how dangerous it could potentially be. And um, and because I got it so early, I I then had license to to travel and to not worry quite as much about about catching it again. Um, so my experience was was very different from everyone else because I found that everyone around me was very fearful. Whereas I was like, well, I, I have the antibodies, so I can get on a plane and I can I can do what everyone else cannot. So it was a very different experience for me. And I and I actually was working on was working on on different films and um, and I think sets have have changed a ton um, due to due to coronavirus and, and um, we still, you know, we're still testing constantly, everyone's masking and it's very different from, from, from what everyday life looks like for everyone else because we're no longer masking at restaurants and we're no longer masking period. But I would say the, the largest challenge for me um, going through COVID was having my kids at home and trying to homeschool them. That was, and having them not have access to their friends and, yeah. and not be able to, to play um, and the socialization they lost. Like my kid now is in kindergarten and he lost two years of being around other kids. Uh, and yeah. um, like that, I think that's, I think it's going to be really interesting looking back and seeing like, it's going to be like the COVID generation. Like what did these mm. kids miss out on, you know? Yeah. Now as a child of a Brazilian mother and who was born in Panama and lived in Brazil and London as well, how do you feel those international experiences growing up has given you a special insight into portraying your many diverse characters in movies? Yeah, I think um, when I, so I grew up in uh, New York and then London and then Rio, and then we moved back to New York, but it was more the timing of moving from Rio to New York at age 10 made me feel like a total fish out of water because mm. I had these, you know, cultural mores and, and the way I, what was normal to me was not normal to all these girls at Sacred Heart. I went to an all girls school in New York called Sacred Heart where everyone goes, Oh, that's where Lady Gaga went. I'm like, yep, mm. that's where Lady Gaga went. Um, but I always felt like a fish out of water. I felt like I was super weird. Like I remember we had talent Tuesday at Sacred Heart, and I chose to dance the lambada, and the nun jaws just dropped to the ground, and I was like, "Wait, is this not done? Is this not done here? Is this not normal?" Um, and I think feeling like an outsider and feeling more comfortable observing other people and being more quiet um, made me feel super comfortable inhabiting other characters. And it, it's what I like the most about acting. Like you're on a set and you, it's almost like I get to be an exhibitionist when the cameras are rolling. Mm -hmm. And, and yet I get to be, I love sitting at a dinner party and just listening and observing and watching what other people say, but not necessarily giving too much of myself. Cause it's really fun just sitting there and just kind of taking notes on everyone else's behavior. And I think that comes from, from having been abroad and always feeling like, a little bit of an outsider. And anything you can say or not about what's coming up in Fast X and what you'll be up to? You know, I wish, I I think what I love so much about this franchise um, is that it's continuously evolving. I really hope that there will be a, a female spinoff. That's what I would, mm. that's my dream. Um, I think that would be really fun to explore that. And, um, yeah, I think that would that's that's what I'm what I'm leaning into and and what I'm um hoping for. And what about the challenges as a woman of acting against those formidable male action stars Vin Diesel and Jason Momoa in the film? The ch you know, it's not really a challenge. I feel like I feel like our franchise has always been very I remember the characters of, of Letty and Mia were always strong, archetypal female characters. So we were ahead of our time mm. um, in that sense, which is very cool. 
And, um, yeah, I mean, I, the challenge of acting with, with Vin and is, is that we know each other so well, and he is like my brother in, hmm. in real life. So then when we have to go in and, like, play these, like, badass action scenes, <laughs> it's like, oh, wait, let me, let me put that hat on. You know, that's, yeah. that's the most challenging, really. And anything else coming up for you? Yeah, I worked on another film um, during the pandemic, but it's it's still in in post production. But it was a very interesting film um, that also it, it explores the the notion of like AI and where we're headed in the future. And um, it's starring Sam Worthington, and I'm blanking on the title. Um, but it was it was a really really fun fun film to work on. Um, but I'm not sure what the release date is yet. And any last word about who invited Charlie and inviting audiences to see your film? I'm really proud of who invited Charlie. I think I think most will relate to it, and I also think it's a very lighthearted peek at what it was like. It's a, it's a lighthearted reflection of what a of, of what a very dark time was for mm. most of us, and I think. Um, everyone will see themselves in this film. And speaking of life challenges, as a mother yourself, did you draw anything from your motherhood experience in real life to play the mother of a son in this film? And how being a mother can include those complicated challenges. Yeah, I think I think being a mother has, has deepened, um, I don't want to say my it has deepened how I portray characters because I feel things more intensely. Yeah. And whenever I'm a mom on screen, I can't help but, but draw from my own experience. And I felt very, very, um, I was able to draw from my life with, with Rosie because I'm very, um, I'm a little bit of an erotic mom. I have a kid. I have two kids who, who who went through the pandemic and and who I have to protect in a way in terms of like the way they they are socially and the way they go through school and so um and the way that can put strain strain on a marriage and a relationship so there were many many similar themes and many um things I I drew upon and and also in in a really fun way as a as a producer of the film with with Nick Scott, I'd be like, you know what? I'd really love to add add this to the scene, and um, and we would just. I mean, that's the great thing about it, like a a, a film that it was almost like summer camp in a way, in the, in the dead of winter in the Hamptons, in that we were able to sort of riff on the script and bring different ideas to it, and a lot of that came from from my personal life and and going through a divorce during the pandemic. So. That was really fun and, and cathartic. So there were, there were many ways in which I related to Rosie. And what challenges do you feel you faced in the film world as a woman and an actress? Ooh, I think I'm, well, I'm not the kind of, I'm, I'm very type A, <laughs> which means, which means I never look back and go, whew, yeah, I, I, I definitely conquered. You know, I'm yeah. always going I'm an abject failure and I still, like, I still need to do so much. So, you know, I think succeeding in this industry at all is, is a win. Um, but I, like, I love actors like, like Minnie Driver. I listen to her podcast and she's so honest about how tough it is to be in this industry. Yeah. Um, and it is, I mean, it's, it's absolutely brutal. I think we've gone from, you know, actors getting offers because they mean something to now you absolutely have to audition and fight for the material that you want. And that can be very humbling, but you just constantly have to go, you know what, I'm going to toss my ego aside. And if I want to stay in it, that's what I have to do. And, and so it's, it's constantly having to relearn the set of rules because they're constantly changing. And I feel like with theaters, with movies not going to the theaters as much and with streaming being the thing and with there being so much material out there, it's so highly competitive. Um, So I I almost feel like I'm back at square one (laughs) in, in many ways, but, 
But honestly, to be 42 and to have worked since I was 15, I feel like that's that's the, my biggest achievement. Oh, yeah. Okay, thank you, Jordana Brewster, for calling into our show. Thank you so much. I really enjoy your podcast. Bye. And more information about the Austin Film Festival, running through November 3rd, is online at austinfilmfestival.com. And coming up next, in the Arts Express screening room, Halloween Movies, a deep dive plunge into, among other excerpted chilling concepts, quote, a slow descent into squalid dystopia, denial, decadence, tribalism, madness, anything to make the nothingness mean something amid the ruinous rot of the capitalist dream, a frosty dirge of moral decay. Are you a serial killer? Chip, the only serial I know anything about is Rice Krispies. It's that wonderful time of year when spooky decorations are scattered, costumes are pulled from cupboards, and the internet starts churning out search engine optimized lists to snatch up those precious algorithmic scraps. And it's an excuse for me to talk about some films I like, so why not? Here's a far from comprehensive list of chilling favourites that are in my annual rotation, but maybe don't get as much attention as they deserve. No, this isn't any of that best horror movie you've never seen condescending clickbait garbage. Just some underrated gems, cult classics, and often forgotten frighteners you may or may not have seen that are perfect to sip a pumpkin spice latte to. A Stephen King Netflix adaptation that found itself unfortunately overshadowed by the very good Gerald's game, 1922 is about the ruinous rot of the capitalistic dream and the sordid lengths one man will go to in order to secure his legacy. Shot with a desaturated dread and gnawed by a creeping nastiness, Thomas Jane simmers through every scene with an affecting, understated grimace, and further validates my belief that he should be a bona fide A-list star, and it's a crime that he isn't. More about decomposing lives than sudden deaths, 1922 is a frosty dirge of moral decay. A feminist dive through the world of extreme body modification, American Mary combines Cronenbergian body horror with a more straightforward tale of superficiality, misogyny, and objectification, never devolving into a freak show spectacle whilst respecting and representing these surgically altered individuals rather than simply gawking at them. Yeah, the ending is unearned and abrupt, but American Mary cuts deep enough to offset the sloppy cleanup. Following a catastrophic malfunction, a speeding colony ship en route to Mars veers off course and is left to drift through the endless void of space forever with no hope of rescue. A slow descent into squalid dystopia, Aniara asks how thousands of people destined to careen through infinite darkness for the rest of their lives can cope with oblivion. Denial, decadence, religious fervour, tribalism, madness… anything to make the nothingness mean something. If existential dread gets to you more than ghouls and guts, Aniara is waiting to take you to the nasties. You are about to experience the cutting edge of medicine. Filling out this silly slasher slot on this list, I taped this off of late night TV when I was a precocious teen up past his bedtime, and that's the exact vibe Dr. Giggles gives off when you watch it now. Dank, 
juvenile and all kinds of wrong, Larry Drake's deranged turn as the titular stab-happy physician is a daft salute to 90s high camp. Dr. Giggles is no masterpiece, but it's a gory, giddy good time. Dream Home is as conceptually clever as it is cruel. A young woman unable to afford a Hong Kong apartment opts to lower the property value by murdering her way through the neighbouring apartments. Even by my sicko sensibilities, this is a capital E extreme slice of satire, crossing every line of decency whilst skewering the mortgage crisis, the violence and overt messaging doesn't leave much room for subtlety or the squeamish. And that's a choice I can totally get behind. A claw hammer to the teeth of upward mobility, Dream Home is gloriously icky stuff. Existence is past! David Cronenberg goes full gamer brain with his sickly, sticky take on virtual reality. Everything you could want from the Canadian master of meaningful mutilation is in existence. Body horror, coalescing hybrids of meat and the mechanical, sex stuff that makes sex seem like the worst thing ever, only now it's got flesh guns that fire human teeth, and ahead of the curve commentary on the all-consuming nature of massive multiplayer online role-playing games. It's basically Inception as corrupted by a hentai virus. I mean, what more do you want? Bill Paxton stars in and makes his directorial debut with a southern gothic thriller that asks, what do you do if your dad tells you he's spoken to God, and that our lord and saviour wants him to butcher strangers with an axe? The strained conflict between dutiful sons and their fracturing faith mounts with every victim as their certifiable father subjects them to ever more harrowing trials and Paxton captures this all with the right blend of suspenseful secrecy and dirt-caked dreariness. If you wish David Fincher felt a little less cold and calculating, frailty might just be what you're after. You know the guttural reveal in the final stretch of Seven? What's in the box? Well, imagine that was the opening scene rather than the ending. I Saw the Devil goes for the jugular from minute one and rarely lets up in its ghoulish game of catch and release, where a serial killer is tormented by the husband of one of his victims, who dedicates his life to interrupting and brutalising the murderer every time he's about to pounce. So, basically, it's Jason Bourne blocking Ted Bundy for two hours, and it's as bludgeoning as it is brilliant. First Love takes a torturous turn when teen heartthrob Brent is kidnapped by Lola and her doting dad, before being forced to act out her putrid prom night fantasies. Cue more than a few awkward moments, interspersed with perverted parlour games and some DIY trepanning. Consistently managing to sprinkle in cringing humour, without undercutting any of the terror, The Loved Ones is a really good time if you like having a twisted, terrible time. As a kid, May was a socially reclusive outsider with only a homemade doll for a friend. Now a maladjusted but endearing adult, May longs for acceptance and understanding, all while remembering the mantra that helped her through her solitary childhood. If you can't find a friend, make one. 
What sets May apart is the desperate longing of its unhinged lead, and Angela Bettis' earnest but uneasy performance anchors every splattery sequence to a tragically empathetic tale of loneliness. A patchwork curio of forlorn looks and grungy filth. Surreal, avant-garde, and often inscrutable, Serial Experiments Lane is an anime miniseries, and it feels both highly prescient but impossible to replicate. One of the few modern genre works to earn its Lynchian comparisons, it's a simple narrative about identity and digital alienation, as abstracted by layer upon layer of shrieking modems, enigmatic editing, and humming power lines. Serial Experiments Lane is a vaporwave head scratcher that's well worth the intellectual bandwidth. Trust the King of Sleaze John Waters to deliver one of the all-time iconic satirical comedies with Serial Mom. A tastefully tasteless up-yours-to-America's-true-crime obsession, a cultural caricature that somehow plays better today than it did almost 30 years ago, Picket Fence Suburbia is doused in sewage by the one and only Kathleen Turner. Giving a performance of such over-the-top gusto and cackling self-awareness, I'm 100% serious when I say it's an Oscar-worthy turn of politely smiling, teeth-grinding rage. A demented, tongue-in-cheek delight. The true story of Australia's most infamous and sadistic serial killers, as told from the perspective of a coerced accomplice, Snowtown is a work of social realism with such naturalistic direction and aesthetics, it'd be spoken of with more hushed reverence if it weren't for one minor detail. Snowtown is a film you suffer through rather than watch. Harrowing and bleak are insufficient words with which to convey just how much this entire thing got to me. Even talking about it now, I can feel it clinging to my skin. The nature versus nurture debate rages in Splice, as a pair of genetic engineers attempt to create a new form of life by crossing every ethical boundary that stands in the way of progress. Eschewing mad scientist tropes for a grounded look at maternal instincts, paternal insecurities, and the aggression inherent to the human condition, there's a deft blend of domestic drama and creature feature squirming that elevates Splice against many of its cautionary tale trappings. A fumbled final stretch keeps this from greatness, but there's still plenty to recommend. Cormac McCarthy's The Road, But If the Apocalypse Was Caused by Vampires, is such an elegant escalation of the post-apocalyptic template, it's kind of shocking it took until 2010 for Stakeland to come lunging out of the dark. What we have here is a lean survivalist hybrid, carried by the best bloodsucker-slaying badass since Blade. Wholly believable in its rusted-over wasteland that hints at a rich lore rather than dumping exposition every five minutes, Stakeland stands way out from the pack. P.S. Never watch the Straight Cable sequel. It's not very good and undoes a lot of what works so well here. Tickled is effective in ways that I can't articulate without giving the game away, so you'll just have to see it for yourself. 
What starts as a documentary about an underground subculture of tickling fetishists goes places so outright troubling, it's one of the few non-fiction features that transcends its real-world trappings and emerges a mouth-agape nightmare. Lurid but never leering, exposing but never exploitative, Tickled is the kind of documentary that will have you proclaiming what as you hide behind your own hands. Whether we're talking about the Mexican original or the American reimagining, you can't go wrong with a nuanced, looming drama about the death of a parent and how the surviving family members adapt and adjust to their new roles as providers and breadwinners. Also, they're cannibals, and the breadwinning mainly involves kidnapping and cooking people. The American version is different enough to stand on its own as a distinct companion piece rather than a mirror reflection, and I actually prefer it to the more languorously paced original. All told though, both movies are intelligent, uncomfortable oddities. So those are 20 horror films you may have seen or you may have not and have yourselves a happy Halloween. A Dancing Skeleton for our Patreon producers Jennifer C, Claire MD, Becky O, Scared Confusion, Jay Carr, and Nicholas Le Revere. As always, thank you f until next time, this is In Frame Out. And thank you In Frame Out for that rather eerie analysis. And now on Arts Express, I started writing about what I thought would be a play, and pretty soon that play was writing me. This is Jack Shalom. When thinking about COVID, the twists and turns of the last three years seem a lifetime. But somehow with all of COVID's initial attendant panic, fear, and isolation, and the major film studios shut down, filmmaker and writer Peter Hedges decided to make a film during the very heart of the pandemic. The result was a unique project called The Same Storm the interlocking stories of some two dozen characters facing life as the COVID world turned us upside down. I'm very happy to be talking with the creator of the same storm, Peter Hedges. Hi, Peter. Hi, Jack. How are you? Hi, Peter. Clearly, COVID was the impetus for the project, but what got you out of your chair to actually make it? Six weeks into the pandemic, it was really beginning to hit that our lives were being shut down and so many ways. The MCC Theater put together a benefit reading on Zoom of an Alan Bound play, which was read live by Marissa Tomei and Oscar Isaac. I was one of the lucky people who got to experience the reading. They Both actors were fearless and generous, and it was so vulnerable, the moment, and so affecting. I found myself weeping. I know others who experienced it too were deeply moved. I couldn't sleep that night, and I started writing what I thought would be a play. And pretty soon that play was writing me. And soon I began to realize it was actually could be a film. It was really that reading that got me thinking that it might be possible to create something that captured that same intimacy and humanity that I experienced that night. This was filmed in the middle of New York's lockdown, and there were no vaccines at the time. That's right. And yet, the way the film is structured, it's kind of a series of Zoom calls, and, and we can actually see the actors in their, in their own apartments. How, how did you manage that? Well, we, we were in their own apartments, but, but oftentimes we would dress the apartment or stage the apartment in such a way that it what maybe was the room, a closet, uh -huh. a supply closet in a hospital or uh -huh. uh, a teacher's home classroom 
the, the way we were able to do it was we were just really fortunate that these 24 remarkable actors were willing to hang and place the sanitized props we set th sent them, assemble a light if we needed an additional lighting, um, operate their own device, their computer, their iPhone, their iPad <laughs> as, a as a camera. That was helped make it possible. And we also were partnered with a company called Straight Up Technologies, which had developed uh -huh. some proprietary software that made this possible for, for me to interact with the actors and involve our DP and our production designer, all of whom were working from home. Our editors could even drop in and watch the filming as it was happening each day. Wow, just amazing. And the cast is full of excellent actors, Elaine May, uh, Mary Louise Parker, Danny Burstein, Sandra Oh, Judith Light, and many, many others I could keep going on. When did you actually have your first meeting? The only time we ever got most of the cast together was when we screened the film, a kind of a cast and crew screening we did after the film was assembled. We never really had everybody together at the same time. Now that the film is opening, I'm actually meeting many of the actors in person for the first time. Really fascinating experience. And I think they share it that to make something in isolation and yet make it very intimately and very full on, but to never have physically met and then to experience the work that we created in isolation collectively in person has been really one of the great pleasures in, in my career and my life. The way that the movie is structured, as we said, it's a series of Zoom calls, but the first scene is person A is speaking with person B, and then the next scene, person B is with person C. Where did you get that idea from? The, the great Austrian playwright Arthur Schnitzler wrote a play called La Ronde, which he employed that device or, or structural mm -hmm. conceit. It was a way that he could explore how syphilis was being passed or some sexually transmitted yeah. disease of that moment. And in this case, we weren't exploring how COVID was passed, but how we're all interconnected. And one of the parts that of this process that was super interesting to me was that we'd get to see characters in two very distinct situations and, and how... Each of us can be so many different people in the course of a day. You hit so many of the points of that time. You know, I mean, we're kind of now we've got the vaccine and people are tending to go out more. You know, we've almost forgotten how crazy it was at that time when you were filming. And you, you hit so many points that for me brought back those times, not being able to visit loved ones in the hospitals, the problems of schooling your children, the problems of intimacy, mental instability, drug and alcohol abuse, just general miscommunication. I mean, those those all existed as problems, but you just reminded us how heightened everything was. I think what I found so moving about that time was just because we couldn't be connected didn't mean that we didn't want to be. We ached to be. Yeah. And so even the simplest conversation can become fraught, you know, just wanting to tell someone you love them and not being able to because of the technology is wonky. While it's, of course, the story set during those early months of the pandemic, pre-vaccine, pre-election, it made for a way to, I, I think, just tell and explore our common humanity, really. So while it's COVID-based, it, my feeling when I watch the movie, and I've had the pleasure of watching it with audiences in the last several days, mm. it feels like it's it's more about our common humanity and this ache we have to connect and what happens when we can't. What I'm so struck by them and the performances that the actors gave was these are people who are really trying and really yearning and um, and finding moments of grace and moments of joy, finding ways, even though it seems impossible, but finding ways to connect. There are mo so many moments in this of transcendence and resilience and celebration, too. And, and that's been fun to experience with an audience because we made it in our 
privately, but we get to share it now collectively. Well, it, it seems like such a personal film. I hate to ask writers this, but did you draw any of the stories from your own experience? I mean, I know it doesn't work directly like that, but... No, well, I, I certainly drew from not only my experiences, but from what I was hearing and able to glean from people around me. Some of the people in my building have small children and they're homeschooling. One of the people in my building is a doctor in a hospital. And so I, we pass in the hallway and I get some sense of how bad it was and how hard it was. And, you know, I remember going to the pick up coffee for my wife one morning while I was out walking the dogs and the barista, I asked, you know, as you know, we were one at a time let in and we kept major distance, but I was able to kind of shout across the coffee. How are you? Uh -huh. the, the coffee shop. And he said, do you really want to know? And I said, yes. And he said, three hours ago, my grandmother passed oh, wow. and she was the love of my life. And I, none of us could be with her. And he wept. And so it was some of what I was experiencing. And it was a lot of what I was hearing about what others were experiencing. Mm -hmm. And of course, while I was writing, a lot of things happened. Uh, some very hard and horrible things. George Floyd was murdered. The political situation got more fractured. It was fraying. You know, we we, we filmed in September, so you didn't know how the election was going to turn out. Oh. There was a lot we didn't know. And that not knowing also made for an interesting writing process, too. How long did the filming take? Uh, we shot over 12 days. I'm sure you went in with a script, but did the actors have input into the script? Was any improvisation going on? It wasn't so much improvisation. They had a massive impact and, and involvement in the script. I, mm -hmm. Many of the scenes I was writing, you know, were, I'm a now 60-year-old white man uh -huh. writing, and, you know, only 10 characters of the 24 are white in the film. There's a lot happening and needs to be happening and how we talk and who tells what stories. So I would do a version of a scene and then the actors and I would read through it and we would vet every moment, every line, every phrase. Mm. I was very open and willing and wanted to be open and willing to getting the language to a place or the scenes to a place where they were excited to film them. There was just real collaborative aspect to it. We needed the every everything to feel to feel true. I tend to be very open and listen to the actors I work with, but on a traditional film, I've never had this in depth of a an engagement a moment to moment, line by line in each and every scene. I hope to carry that forward when I return to more traditional filmmaking. Hmm. I think it's uh. It's the only way, really, to tell stories for me now. You know, it's my job to write to write the script, but then listen. And, and, and in listening, I could take you through every scene in the movie and, and give you example after example where something was bettered or deepened or more humanized because of the actor's engagement and their involvement. Hmm. What was the most surprising thing for you about the project? I think I was repeatedly and deeply moved by the what I would call heroic efforts of all involved. <laughs> Every day I would be in tears over someone overcoming something to get our film made from actors spending hours dressing the set of their home so it would be more appropriate for our film and the unsettling aspect that it must have been for their lives, you know, their willingness to, you know, do the camera and and put on their own makeup and and things that you know that are just unusual asks of any actor, but everyone was so game. I think I'm surprised that they all said yes. Uh, I remember when Elaine May called to, you know, we I'd sent her the script and written a letter and I, I thought there's no way she'll do this film ever. Why would she? And she 
the phone rang one day. I was at my desk and I was about to offer it to someone else because I just thought she, you know, we have to move on. And she said, oh, hi, it's Elaine May. And I went, oh, you know, couldn't breathe. Oh, and then she said, I just have some questions about my part. It, she just got to work right away. Yeah, she's she's wonderful. I mean, we know we know that woman. <laughs> a- yeah. Anything you'd like to add, Peter? Um, just that I I would say two things. One, there are lots of amazing films this fall, and if you can get to an actual theater and actually sit with other actual people and watch an actual film in the actual way, do it. But also say to someone who might be listening to this, people when I've been at screens come up to me and said. When I heard about this film, I did not want to see it. And then they say, and I am so glad I did. I didn't know how badly I needed this experience. This is a good time for a lot of people to experience the same storm. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jack, so much. I've been talking with Peter Hedges, the director and writer of a unique film, about and filmed during the height of the COVID crisis, the same storm. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. So we have time for it today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.